Today, I'm going to jump right into the second week of a series we launched last weekend called In This House. And last week, we started by talking about in this house, we set an atmosphere of faith. And what that simply means is we don't wait and respond to the temperature like a thermometer. We set it like a thermostat. That means no matter what kind of week you've had, no matter what's going on in the world around us, when we come together as the body of Christ at Wrightsville Assembly of God, we determine, because the word says with God nothing is too difficult, all things are possible, we determine to believe. Amen? Amen. We just believe it could all change in this moment. Any believers today? Amen. Amen. It could all change in this moment. And so we set the atmosphere of faith, whether we're gathered in worship like we are right now or we're in a life group, and, and maybe even this crosses over into your own life. Now, let me just say before I go any farther today that these uh, thoughts that we're sharing in this series are the values of our local church. We, we believe these things are probably better caught than taught, but I want to give vocabulary to them. I, w- I want to put some handles on these things so that, so that when you experience them in this church, you know what it is you're experiencing and, and that it's something that we're pursuing intentionally. But I also want to say, because maybe you're just logged on and this isn't your home church, or maybe you're here as a guest today, I believe <coughs> these six values are for every believer. In every church, in every age, if you're a part of the body of Christ, if you're a lover of Jesus, then I believe these things are, are anchored in the truth of God's word, and, and they're going to find a value in your life. So I want to encourage you, whether this is your home church or not, to lean in with your heart today to what God wants to say. Because the second thought that I want to drill down on today is that in this house, we battle mediocrity. <coughs> we battle mediocrity. Uh, I'm sure you've probably noticed already that we live uh, in a world right now where we're sur- <laughs> surrounded by passion-impaired people. Have you experienced some of those folks? No drive, no ambition, no desire. Maybe we'll get up and do something today. Maybe we'll just watch a whole nother season today of our favorite show. Like, you know, no, no ambition. But how many of you understand that Jesus placed the church on the earth for purpose? And if we have a purpose, we ought to be passionate about it. Mediocrity never inspired anybody. I mean, just think of all your heroes as a child. I bet none of them just like sat on the sofa and did nothing, right? No, they were people that were laser focused in probably just a few areas of their life, but they excelled in it with excellence. I want, I want to start by going to a scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 because Paul's writing to one of the churches in the first century and he's, describe, he's commending them for their attitude and their actions and for their conduct. And I want you to just see the words that Paul said about these Christians and Prayerfully, these words can be said of us. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, I just got to stop here and unpack this for a moment because this is unique. This is different. Happiness is based on happenings. Everybody's happy from time to time. 
But joy is deeper than that. Joy is abiding. Joy is a river that flows on a subterranean level of your spirit that even when it looks like you're in a season of drought, there's still something there that refreshes your soul. That's joy. And Paul says, you didn't just have joy, you had joy in the midst of intense and severe suffering. And it it caught people's attention. Because you you weren't just responding to what was happening in the world. There was something deeper about your life. There was something more significant. Now, let me just say this, because I know I'm speaking to a broad audience of church background. Maybe you've got a lot of church background. Maybe you have no church history. But I would dare say there's probably a few words, a few ideas, maybe even some actions or antics or style of clothing that you would associate with Pentecost. And if, if you said those are Pentecostal people, you get a, a, a thought in your mind. I don't know what it is. If it's like a, you know, a big uh, church hat or, you know, a big King James Bible or, or, or somebody just screaming and shouting and wearing a three-piece suit. I don't know what it is. But can I give you a new point of reference? This verse that we just looked at is what it looks like to be a spirit-filled church. The evidence of a spirit-filled church is a people who have an abiding joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's what we ought to aim for, that people would look at our life and say, there's something that's happening on a deeper level in them. And so Paul goes on and he says this in the next verse. And so you became, because of that, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And then he says this, therefore... We do not need to say anything about it. Now, this is Paul, the apostle, greatest missionary that ever walked the face of the earth, hands down. And he says, when I go and try to talk about the church, which I always do, I don't even have to say anything about you guys. Because your reputation precedes you. They already know. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know, we know about those Thessalonican believers. Now, those folks are pumped up. Those folks are excited. They're happy. They've got joy. And it doesn't even make sense because they're facing severe trials. But there's something that, that's inside of them, and it's contagious. And can I just say, we battle mediocrity because there's something powerful and passionate that flows through our veins. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that caused us out of, le- uh, out of death and, and into life. And that ought to be contagious. That ought to be infectious. That ought to influence other people. Now I want to tell you about another church from the same era. And this is a church in Ephesus. And Jesus wrote a letter to this church. It's found in the book of Revelation chapter 2. We ought to pay careful attention to the letters that Jesus writes to the church because there's only seven of them in the whole Bible and they're all right here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Jesus writes to this church and this is what he says. Revelation 2 beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work. In other words, he was saying, you're dedicated. You're hardworking. I've seen that. He says, and your perseverance. So you're not just dedicated, you're determined. I see that. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. So he says, you're discerning. 
I see that in you, church. You're, you're a discerning body. Then in verse 3, he says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. So he says, you're disciplined. Now, how many of you think this sounds like a pretty good church? I mean, they're, de- they're dedicated, they're determined, they're discerning, they're disciplined. If we use those words to describe a church today, how many of you agree with me? That's a good church. That they're doing good here. And yet Jesus writes this letter, and some of you, you scholars, you're ahead of me. Slow down. Wait for me to get to the punchline. He's actually writing an indictment against this church. They're doing all those things right, true, but there's something that they're missing. What is it? Look at the next verse. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. He was saying, I'm going to remove your influence in the culture. In Matthew 5, Jesus said that that we're to be a city on a hill that can't be hidden. But he said, if you don't repent, if you don't come back to your first love, I'm going to remove your influence. And in one generation's time, they went from being a people of faith to a people of formalism, to a people that were just going through the motions. They moved from passion to passivity in a matter of one generation. And this rebuke that Jesus writes to them is a total contradiction to the letter that Paul wrote to them just 35 years earlier. So let me take you really quick to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. 35 years before that letter came out, Paul the apostle writes to the same church, and he says this in verse 15 and 16. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, For all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. Paul was so excited about this church, the way they loved people, the way they were so committed to God in the faith. He said, I I can't stop thanking God for you. Every time I think of you guys, I just break out in praise. I love this church of Ephesus. And yet 35 years later, Jesus writes his rebuke. And he tells them, you know what, you're doing a lot of things right. I mean, when they got the letter from Jesus, this is the second generation of the church. Most of the people that are getting his letter, they weren't the leaders of the church when Paul's letter came. But they grew up in the faith. They saw God do great things. They saw the church growing and thriving. And and now Jesus' letter comes, and, and he says some good things. He says, you know what, you've retained your purity of doctrine and 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 service. But somewhere in the midst of all of that, you're lacking deep devotion to Christ. Church, this ought to sound like an alarm bell in the ears of the Church of America today. Because what Jesus is saying is your orthodoxy is not enough. What's happening between your ears, not enough. Your service is not enough. What you're doing with your head, what you're doing with your hands, it's not enough. I'm looking for your heart. Jesus is saying to the church, I'm looking for your heart. Where's the passion? Where's the first love? Where's the first love? And he tells them, you need to to consider how far you've fallen. You need to go back and do the things you did at first. I can tell you that on a side note, that's good marriage counseling for somebody today. 
We can get so caught up in the stuff of marriage and so caught up in the activity of, of, of our role and your role. And, and, and that's what this church was doing. And Jesus says, yes, but you've forsaken your first love. You lost that look in your eye. Something's missing. And Jesus says, repent. Now, when we hear the word repent, let's be honest, we usually think about lost people, right? We think about people that don't know God, that are far from God, and they say, repent, turn from your sins. But can I remind you, Jesus is talking to the church. Jesus is talking about believers. And he's saying, you need to repent. You need to turn back to me. He wants your heart. Not just your head, not just your hands. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 10, in verse 10. He said, the thief, the devil, he only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life and that they may have it to the full. Church, can I tell you today, a full life that Jesus came to give you is not defined by mediocrity. It's defined by passion. Passion. So if you're a note taker, what I really want you to understand is that we have to battle mediocrity in our living. How we live our life. It ought to be a life of passion. Of passion. A full life is not about doctrine or duty. It's not about our teaching and our serving. It's about our heart. Our heart ought to pound through our chest for the things that God's heart beats for. And so in this house, at Wrightsville Assembly of God, we battle against the doldrums of life that want us to be lulled into mediocre living because Jesus came to give us life abundantly. Can I just remind us, you know this to be true, but Jesus did not leave the glory of heaven, come down and walk among us for 30 years, feel our pain, be acquainted with our suffering, give his life on the cross, resurrect from the dead, bodily ascend back up to heaven, just so that you could come and sit for an hour on a padded chair and be kind to your neighbor. How many of you understand the purpose of God is much bigger than that in scope? Jesus came to purchase for you access to the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to live a victorious life. We're not here to bide time. We're not here to hold the fort. We're not here to just, just hang on and keep the faith until Jesus, our Redeemer, comes to rescue us. Jesus called us into this world to advance his kingdom. He's got a purpose for us, and so we've got to battle against mediocrity in the way that we live our lives. Paul, he, he wrote to the Ephesian church 35 years before Jesus' letter got there, and in it, he prophetically warned them. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 14, he warned them about a passionless relationship with Jesus, and here's what he said. Ephesians 5, 14, this is why it is said, wake up. Oh, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Church, short of shaking you physically, I don't know what else I can do, but we've got to shake off the anesthetic of sleepy American Christianity. We're just so comforted. We get lulled into complacency with the convenience, and thank God for this generation. I thank God that people can watch me online right now that can't be in the building. I'm, I'm not despising the day that God called us to. I believe for such a time as this, we were placed on the earth, but I also know that it's easier now more than ever to just be lulled 
into a comfort and to forget that we were called to a battle line. We were called for a purpose in the earth. And so we've got to battle against complacency and apathy. We've got to wake up, sleeper, and let Christ's love and his light shine through you. Sometimes we, we, we get so comfortable that, that it, our prayer life even begins to reveal the depth of our relationship with God to the point that all we ever really pray for is that God would keep us safe. Now, nothing wrong with praying for safety. I, I pray that over my daughter's Every day, I, I claim that scripture in Proverbs or Psalms that says, and he will give his angels charge over you. Thank God for safety. But if all you ever do is, is talk to God about keeping you safe, it's as if we've forgotten that God's plan for your life was not to arrive at your death safely. <laughs> He's got more than that in mind for you. Yes, God will protect you. He is Jehovah Jireh. But how many of you understand that God cares way more about your significance than he does your safety? Some of us, our prayer life goes no deeper than asking for God's blessing, asking for God's favor, whether it's on our lives, on our, on our food, on our church. We just ask God to bless. And, and we often, even in our culture, we say, God bless America. And, and I wonder if we say that because we like the conveniences that a blessed nation has afforded us. But maybe if we were more committed to the cause and the call that God saves souls more than he cares about democracies, maybe instead of saying, God bless America, we'd start interceding, God bless Americans. Like, it's the people that he loves. Kingdoms rise and fall, but it's people that God's heart beats for. That's what he's passionate about. We can't let our passions be confused with other things. So in this house... We battle mediocrity because we're called to live with passion. Let me, let me tell you what that word mediocre means. The definition of the word mediocre, it, it means middle degree. In other words, not too hot, not too cold, just middle degree. Here's what Paul said about the temperature of your life. In Romans chapter 12, verse 11, he said, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That word fervor in the original Greek language was a word that meant boiling point. Isn't that awesome? Paul's saying, keep your spiritual life at boiling point. Don't let it cool down. I mean, keep it right there, ready to, ready to bubble over the top so that it's contagious, so that other people are impacted by it, so that other people see what God is doing in your life. In other words, what he's saying is if you have spiritual fervor, if your passion for God is at boiling point, you're going to live with enthusiasm. I wish somebody in the 1130 service was living with enthusiasm. I hear you saying amen online. Thank you so much for your, thanks for shouting me down from your living room. You know, listen, I, I love that word, enthusiasm. I looked it up. It literally means N-E-N, theos, in God. So if you're in God, you ought to be enthusiastic. Now, I know I'm kind of poking fun at the level of hype in the room, but you understand I'm talking about more than a hype meeting. 
I'm talking about more than a pep rally. That's not going to do anything for the kingdom of God to just come and, you know, pat each other on the back and clap and cheer. And, but I'm talking about something that, that begins to be a catalyst in your life, something that begins to drive you at a deeper level. There was another church that Jesus had a letter for in the book of Revelation, and it was the church in Laodicea. And what was interesting about the city of Laodicea is that it was probably the wealthiest city in the Roman province of Asia Minor. Of all the cities, they were doing great Uh, in in commerce, in in culture, with clothing, in medicine. They were producing an eye salve that was healing people's eyes. And so they had some notoriety. A lot of things were going well in Laodicea. In fact, there was only one thing that the city lacked. They didn't have their own source of fresh water. And so the city of Laodicea had to build a pipeline from a neighboring city, Heropolis. And in Heropolis, they had mineral water, which were like hot springs. And so they would pipe that water into Laodicea so that they would have hot water. And then over in Colossae, they had cool springs that were springing up. And so they would pipe water in from Colossae so that they had hot water that was medicinal and therapeutic, and they could gargle with it. And then they had cold water, which was refreshing and satisfying. The problem was, and Earl can back me up on this because he's a plumber, the pipeline was above grade, and it wasn't insulated. So the hot water, when it got to Laodicea, wasn't that hot. And the cold water, when it came from Colossae, wasn't that cold. So Jesus looks at this church, and essentially he says to them, the water that you're drinking has become a picture of the passivity of the church. It's a statement about where you are at. And he writes to them in Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words. These are the words of the amen. See, that's why I need amens in church, because Jesus is the amen. If you can't say amen, just say Jesus. All right, just. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Here's what he tells this church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Wow. You could just... You can visualize that, can't you? But look at what he says to these people. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. What were they doing? They were looking at their success. They were looking at the other cities around them. They were looking at all of the accomplishments they had. How many of you know that can happen in a church today just like it could then? If we're not careful, we can just, we can just pat ourselves on the back. And we can just tell the stories of all the things we've seen God do. And we can just rock back into neutral. And we can take an attitude of complacency and stop advancing the kingdom of God because of all the great things God has done. I got my car salesman right here, and he can testify today. There's a reason that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror on the car. Because you're not going to get anywhere safe by looking and living in the past. And the Laodicean church was so comfortable in what they had accomplished, so proud of their accolades, of their, of their culture and their, their wardrobe and their medicine that they had discovered to heal people's eyes. And Jesus says this to those people. He says, but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, 
poor, blind, and naked. Wow, tell us how you really feel, Jesus. And then he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes. In other words, you are putting confidence in your currency. You are putting confidence in your clothes. You are putting confidence in your medicine. You're blind, you're poor, and you're naked. I wish you would come to me for your provision so that you can see. And then after Jesus lays, lays down the, the gauntlet on him with those words, look at verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. In other words, it's like that moment, you know, it's too real in my mind of when my dad would say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Yeah. You know, I'm only doing this because I love you. I'm thinking there's a lot of ways to express love. That is not one of them. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm telling you this for your own good. I'm doing this for your own good. And then he says to that church the same thing he said to the church of Ephesus. So be earnest and repent. Look at verse 20. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now maybe you've seen that that famous picture of Jesus standing outside of the door. and, And we often think of that verse and Often when we think of it, we're thinking about people that don't know Jesus, right? And you've probably heard preachers before say, Jesus is standing, knocking at your heart's door, and he wants to come in, and he wants you to have a relationship with him, which is absolutely true, by the way. I do believe if you don't know the Lord, and you come into this service, and you hear these worshipers worshiping, and people praying, and believing God, and you hear the authoritative word of God being proclaimed, I believe the Holy Spirit's drawing you right now to salvation. But let's stay in the context for a minute, and let me remind you that Jesus wasn't standing at the door of lost people. He's talking to the church. Can you imagine if we came and we had a great song service and and listened to a sermon and just enjoyed the fellowship and the coffee and and we're all just celebrating all the great things God's done in this church and and Jesus all the while is outside going, can I come? Can I I be a part of this? Is is this still my church? Or has this become something of a social gathering? Is this something altogether different? He's saying to the church, hear me knocking at the door. Why? Because the church had become complacent. They had become apathetic. Jesus is saying, you're not serving me with passion. You're mediocre. You're lukewarm. You're middle degree. And it's, it's not hot enough to be soothing, and it's not cold enough to be refreshing, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your influence if you don't come back. So we have to battle mediocrity. Now, let me be very clear. We don't have to battle other people's mediocrity. You've probably all been frustrated with a coworker or, uh, or, or a sibling that didn't put in the effort for the chores you were supposed to be doing together, and you're, they're not pulling their load, and you're like, come on, I'm doing all the cleaning down here. Is that just kids in my house? I don't know. Okay, that was a quote from this week. 
You've all experienced other people's mediocrity. And if you try to inspire other people out of their mediocrity, I can tell you that's going to be frustrating. You're going to get frustrated. No, we have to battle the mediocrity in our own hearts because it's human nature for us to want to drift back to complacency, to drift back to the road that's easiest, to not have drive, but we have to battle mediocrity in the way we live. And I want you to hear this today. We have to battle mediocrity in our serving, not just in our living, but in our serving. The way we say that in our membership class is this, we turn from minimal expectations and we chase excellence in everything we do. We consciously turn from good enough is good enough. When is good enough good enough? It's never good enough if it's for God. Your best is what God desires. I I love the story of Eric Liddell. He was the 1924 Olympian. If you know the movie Chariots of Fire, that's the guy, Eric Liddell. He grew up the son of missionaries to China. And as as an all-star college athlete and an Olympian, his sister was concerned that he was going to lose his passion for the call of God on his life because of his ambitions for racing. And she tried to talk him out of it. She tried to discourage him from running so that he wouldn't lose his spiritual fervor. And here's what Eric Liddell said to his sister. I love this. He said, I believe that God made me for a purpose for China. But I also believe he made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. Isn't that great? What a thought. To win is to honor him. Do you know where he got that? The word of God says in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 17, Paul told the church, he said, and, and whatever you do, I mean, that's a pretty inclusive statement. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thankfully, Eric didn't listen to his sister. Eric's father had a different perspective on his racing. Eric's father understood this Colossians 3.17 principle, that whatever you do, you can do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. You can do it for the glory of God. And I read a statement this week that Eric Liddell's father told him, and this may be the best dad vice I've ever heard. Here's what his dad said to him. He said, Eric, you can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. Then he said, don't compromise. Compromise is a language of the devil. Run in God's name and let the world stand back in wonder. Isn't that great advice? Can I pass that on to somebody else that maybe you just thought your service to the Lord happened between 1130 and 1230 on a Sunday morning? Can I encourage you? Run in God's name. Run that business in God's name. Raise those kids in God's name. And let the world stand in wonder. Because everything we do, we do for the glory of God. Paul goes on in that same chapter, Colossians 3, in verse 23, and he says this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart 
as working for the Lord and not for human masters. And I love that he added that last part because it's almost like Paul could hear our rebuttal. Like when, when he says, work at it with all your heart, you know, the flesh in us says, well, yeah, well, you don't know who I work for. Or, you know, they don't really deserve my best. Maybe he hears that, that murmuring spirit that just says, well, you know, they're going to pay me the same either way, so I don't know why I need to put my whole heart in it. But Paul just adds to the command. He says, don't do it as if you're working for them. Do it as if you're working for the Lord. Do it for God. Can I tell you, church, we battle mediocrity in our serving because it all comes down to this. Jesus deserves my best today. Jesus deserves my best today. That, that's the bottom line. And I, let me tell you what I didn't say. I didn't say I'm going to battle mediocrity because Jesus deserves the best I've ever done today. Because how many of you have off days? Yeah. I got to be honest with you. I can't do the best I've ever done every day. I, I, have, some really, I, I have some days where my best today is not actually very good. But I'm going to give him what I've got. It's my best Today, I didn't say God deserves the best there ever was, because if we live by that mentality, you know what we'll do? We'll sideline ourselves from serving at all. We'll get so locked up in the bondage of perfectionism that we'll fall into that category of what is called the ready, aim, 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 aim syndrome. And we'll never pull the trigger on doing anything for God, because we haven't arrived at the destination of perfection See, perfection is a destination, but chasing excellence is a direction. So that's what we're called to, to say, I'm going to give God my very best that I have today. And I'm going to trust God, even in our mission statement as a church. It's to lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. And try as I may, as much as my heart would love to do this, I can't lead anybody to perfection. But I can lead them in the direction of where God wants them to be. And so we we can't paralyze ourselves with the impossible destination of perfectionism, but we can move in the direction of giving God the very best that we have in this moment. As the worship team comes, I, I want to tell you a story that I read recently from one of the early church fathers. It's just blew my mind. Justin Martyr wrote about Jesus 90 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension up to heaven. And what amazed me about his writings is that he wrote about Jesus' incredible carpentry skills. I don't know if that's surprising to you or not, but I mean, I've read the book. And yes, Jesus followed his his, uh, earthly father in the trade and he was a carpenter but at about age 30 Jesus stepped into the waters of the Jordan he was baptized by John the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove God spoke from heaven Jesus went on to preach to thousands of people stories that we're still trying to understand today Jesus did miracles he opened blinded eyes he raised the dead Jesus prophesied his own death and resurrection and he pulled it off and then he ascended up to heaven after appearing to some 500 people I don't know about you, but when I know all of that, I'm a little shocked to find out that 90 years later, Justin Martyr was writing about Jesus' carpentry. He wrote about the craftsmanship that Jesus would use in making plows and yokes for the oxen. 
and how he would use those things in his teachings. What that says to me is that Jesus didn't wait for a more significant assignment to battle mediocrity. Jesus didn't wait until it was his moment to be the savior of the world. In fact, Jesus built a platform in Nazareth, not out of wood, but out of integrity. Could you imagine if Jesus had been a, a shady business dealer? Could you imagine if he had been in debt? Could you imagine if he, you know, he wasn't giving people's tools back that he borrowed and, and he owed people money and then all of a sudden the dove comes and descends on him and God says, this is the savior of the world? See, we can't wait for a more significant assignment to battle mediocrity. Everything you do, you do for God. Whether you're preaching in this pulpit or, 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 or changing diapers in the nursery or taking care of your own kids or, or, or sitting behind a computer, we have to battle mediocrity in serving. I believe this, church. Our best days are still ahead of us. I believe that. I believe our best ministries have yet to be created. I, I think some of the greatest leaders in this church are probably being held in the nursery right now. Maybe the next missionary to impact a nation is sitting in kids' church today. See, we have to have vision that's greater than our memories so that we can move into our future with confidence. And so we have to battle mediocrity. We, we, I mean, I love nostalgia as much as anybody. I love to capture moments, print them out in sepia tones and put them in an old rustic barnwood frame and go, man, wasn't that awesome? But I can't live there. Our best days are still ahead of us because we live in an atmosphere of faith and we expect and live towards the coming of the Lord. We have to battle mediocrity in our hearts and I want to challenge you today as we close this service that maybe God's calling some of you to battle mediocrity in the way you're living. Maybe it's not blatant sin. Maybe you're like the Laodicean church and, and you could rattle off all the things you're doing right. But you're just lukewarm. You're not at boiling point anymore. Or maybe you're like the Ephesus church. You got a lot of good things going for you, but you lost that love and feeling. You lost that twinkle in your eye. There's something that gripped you at the altar that's not there anymore. And for some of us, God wants to challenge us to battle mediocrity in our serving, to, to stop making excuses, to not live by whatever standard the world and other people are setting, but to chase excellence. To say, you know what, this is for Jesus. Whether I'm, whether I'm taking the gospel to the nations or building a table, this is for Jesus. In 90 years from now, I want what I've done to matter. And I'm going to tell you, as we get ready to pray, the key to keeping your passion. Here it is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If I could paraphrase it for the sake of this sermon today, I'd say it like this. Christ is our passion because we were first his passion. You know, the most common definition of the word passion is this, a compelling emotion or desire. 
And maybe when you heard me talking about passion, that's what you thought about. A passionate person, compelled, they're emotional. They have a lot of desire, a lot of drive. But for many, many years, the primary definition of the word passion in the Webster's Dictionary was this. The sufferings of Christ on the cross. That's why years ago when Mel Gibson made his movie about the brutality of the crucifixion, he called it Passion of the Christ. Because in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, the Bible tells us after his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. But in the older English translations, in the King James Version, it says, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. Passion means suffering. And so the greatest display of God's passion for us is the cross. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the, we, we are familiar with the words of John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. I, I love that it doesn't say that God loved the world so much. No, he so loved the world. He passionately loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever would believe in Jesus would not have to die but could have everlasting life. God showed us his passion on the cross. And we're called to show our passion to him with our lives. So we're going to pray, and this worship team is going to sing a song we sang earlier. But as we pray, I want to, I want to challenge you. And Pastor Chris alluded to this earlier as we were praying. Let's battle mediocrity in our expectation. Let's not pray prayers that, to be quite honest, it doesn't matter if God shows up. It doesn't matter if he answers it, you know. God, give us a good day. Well, the weather's nice. It might be a good day, you know, either way, you know. But God challenged me this week, personally, to believe God for bigger things. I don't want my prayers to testify that I serve a mediocre God. I don't serve a mediocre God. I serve an awesome God. He's awesome, church. He can do the impossible. Amen. Amen. Nothing is too difficult for God. So why should we pray with low expectation? These little mediocre prayers. I don't know what need you have in your life today, but I want to challenge you in these closing moments. Let's raise our level of expectation. And let's believe in a big God together. Would you stand all over this room? Those of you online, I want to just encourage you to engage with us in this moment. I know you feel like you're by yourself on the other side of the screen, but, but we're praying for you. We're with you right now. Father, today, in Jesus' name, would you, would you search our hearts? Lord, if, if we've allowed ourselves to become numb and anesthetized by a, a casual and comfortable version of Christianity in our culture, God, help us to wake up. As Paul said, wake up, O sleeper. Wake up. Let Christ's light shine through you. God, stir us out of our complacency today. Stir us out of our apathy. Move us from that middle degree of being lukewarm. God, I pray that our life would be filled with passion, that it would be contagious, even infectious, that other people would see the joy that we have, even in the midst of hardship, and they would know that there is a, a wellspring of life that flows subterranean within our spirit, man. Let our life 
and our witness be known because of our passion for you. God, help us in our service. Help us, Lord God, to have an attitude that says, I'm going to give my best to you because you deserve it. You deserve our best. And even today, God, would you just, by faith, by your Holy Spirit, begin to stir up another level of expectation, another level of expectation for what you can do, for what you want to do. In Jesus' name, we're asking you, God, to move in our hearts today. God, would you enlarge our capacity to believe for more, to believe for what you want to do in this hour, in this generation, and in this church. Because in this house, God, we we commit to battle mediocrity. 